This spring marks the 30-year anniversary of the tragedy in Waco, Texas, where ATF and FBI leadership flagrantly attempted to arrest David Koresh, religious leader of the Branch Davidians, and serve a warrant at their compound for violating federal firearms laws. The resulting seven-week siege, bookended by assaults on the Mount Carmel compound, led to the deaths of 86 people, including children, women, ATF agents, and Koresh. But how did Koresh and the Branch Davidians come to be? What were some of the most glaring mistakes made by federal officials leading up to the initial raid and through the 51-day standoff? And just how influential was that awful event on anti-government movements that exist in modern times? Jeff Gwynn, the best-selling author of Manson and The Road to Jonestown, answers these questions and much more in the phenomenal new book, Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. This book includes interviews with more than a dozen former ATF agents who took part in the initial raid on February 28, 1993, but have never discussed it on record. In the first of a two-part chat, Jeff and I discuss how the Branch Davidians and David Koresh came to be, with part two comprising the Waco siege tragedy in the spring of 93. Jeff, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Hope life's good in Austin. Life is good in Austin. Hope the same thing for you up in the DFW area where I did most of my growing up. So, Jeff, this book was so good. I can say uh, without fail right now as we sit at the end of January that this is going to end up being one of my favorite books of 2023. So I guess my first question for you is how long did this book take and what was the real starting point for you with regards to looking in to this complex story? This book required about two and a half years of 24-7 research and, and research travel, and then another eight months or so of writing a draft, doing some fixes, and getting the final version in. And I've been thinking about it since probably January 2021. Mm. That was when we had the assault in the Capitol building, and several of the folks who were leading that, and then Alex Jones, one of the major commentators, got their start in terms of anti-government protest right after what happened in Waco in 1993. And since it has had such a, a lingering effect, I thought, I would like to know more about what happened in Waco. I really want to understand what happened there because it's still having such an effect today. And one of the big selling points for this book, and we're certainly going to get into the history of the Branch Davidians and how that uh, religious group came to be, and then also how Vernon Howell, a.k.a. David Koresh, uh, came to be the person that he ultimately was uh, during those tragic days in the early to mid-1990s. But uh, one of the big selling points for this book is the fact that there were more than a dozen former ATF agents who were a part of that initial raid, who actually spoke on the record for the first time. Uh, I guess where along that process did you secure some of those interviews and what had to have been uh, some of the most intriguing information for you to collect throughout this process too? Well, I never want to write a book. This is my 25th. When somebody else has already written a book that explains the same things I want to find out about. And so when I looked at what had been written about Waco so far, one of the things that struck me was we never had any direct input, any direct testimony 
from the 76 ATF members who participated in the original raid. These were the guys who could tell us how the planning went down, what kind of training they had, what they were expecting to happen that day. That's just a huge hole in the story. From there, I was very fortunate after one or two of them finally talked to me. They'd been ordered not to hmm. talk ever about this by their agency. They decided maybe they'd just suggest to some of their other friends who were on the raid that day that they should talk to me too. Ultimately, the count reached 20. So for the first time, we know a lot of the ATF perspective, and that's critical. And from there, that was the starting point. Then I started to look for other things that might not have been explained. And in just about all regards, it turned out there was quite a bit. Hmm. Is there something that sticks out in your mind as you say that? The unexplainable or unexplained up to that point that you found some answers to? I did. Uh, you probably will want to talk about David Koresh and how he came into his beliefs later. Oh, yeah. The two stunning revelations for me, the two really big ones in the book. One does involve Koresh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. The other was the ATF plan for the original raid, which has never really been discussed. And when we understand that, the misconceptions ATF had about the people they were about to move in on, then we can see how that almost inexorably starts step by step by step until the final tragedy. Yeah, the idea of underestimating your opponent has almost become cliche to this point, but that is a great example of that, and we'll certainly get into that a little bit later on. But you uh, really start this book after the introduction of exploring just how the Branch Davidians came to be as a religious organization, and then one that set their roots in Waco, Texas. So the religious origins of this group, and this shocked me to find out, goes all the way back to the founding of the Seventh-day Adventist movement by a New York farmer and armchair Baptist minister who took biblical interpretations to literal extremes. This includes uh, being quite the end-of-world mongers, which is a, a common right. trait amongst Seventh-day Adventists. Well, by the 1920s, this uh, religious movement had spread all over the country, including out to California. Well, out in California, there was a Bulgarian immigrant by the name of Victor Hotev who was a member of California's Seventh-day Adventist, but became frustrated that some of the members of this religion were not treating things as seriously enough as he thought that they should be. Enough so that he started an offshoot called the Shepherd's Rod and eventually convinced a group of more than 100 peers and followers to move with him to a 200-acre tract of land that he bought in northeast Waco. Why was Waco the perfect place for this group to settle back in the 19, uh, early 1930s? Well, Victor Hautef, uh, his day job was selling washing machines. <laughs> he was not coming from a great deal of income that uh, he could afford to get some big property in, in California, in Los Angeles, where prices were so high. He did a national search, and this will probably not surprise too many people, but there's a lot of rocky land uh, just north and northeast of Waco that could be had for just a few dollars an acre. The other advantage when he did his research was that Waco was understood to be a very conservative religious community. Hautif believed that the only way anyone was going to be spared in the end times 
when only a few true believers, 144,000, are going to be spared for the new kingdom, he had to find a place where he could keep his followers free of sin and still have room for these 144,000 others who would be coming to join them just before the end. He needed a lot of space. Waco, if nothing else, sure had a lot of that to offer. It sure did. And uh, he ends up uh, creating a couple of different ways during his uh, waves during his time as the leader of what ultimately became the Branch Divisions. First off, uh, by marrying the 17 year old daughter of some of his followers uh, that was in the late 1930s, I believe. And then in the early 1940s, as the U.S. was starting to get involved in World War II, he actually had this uh, his organization reclassified as a religion, as an organized religion in order to right. help the followers avoid having to serve in World War II. Uh, they became known as the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association and uh, eventually became known around Waco as the Davidians. Right. And again, the whole idea was that he wanted his followers to go out and convince other Seventh-day Adventists. These were the ones he thought could yet be saved. Everyone else is too sinful. The problem being, of course, that when you're a prophet and you say the end is coming, sooner or later you have to deliver. Uh, Mount Carmel in Waco was not what you would call a, a sort of vacation haven. Uh, they moved once, you know, even to some even more barren property. The people living there called it the anthill because it was so infested with fire ants. <laughs> At any rate, Victor Hodef was preaching these things are going to come, but unfortunately for him, he passed away before they did. There was a great deal of upheaval over the next years, different people claiming to be the prophet that should succeed him. Until finally, a woman named Lois Roden in the 1960s becomes the leader based on her prophecy that an angel of God visited her to say the Holy Ghost is female, which means God respects women as much as men. We can say this is probably a fair assessment as outsiders, but what this did was it started a tradition with the Davidians, now calling themselves the Branch Davidians. You become the leader by being a prophet who gets messages directly from God. And this is critical for what happened afterward. That's pretty surprising for a group of people who are taking the Bible so literally, considering how often that book treats females as second-class citizens, that they would have been so receptive to her message that God has this feminine side to... Uh, the, the deity, and that uh, women should be treated with a similar level of respect. The Branch Davidians were taught that the Bible is not just talking about ancient times, that if it is interpreted properly, and properly means there's probably going to be only one prophet at a time who can do that, you will see messages, the prophet can interpret them, that have meaning for modern times. In other words, the Bible may say, and the army leader had a sword. The prophet of the Davidian, one of the prophets of the Davidian said, well, that really means a gun. Hmm. The Bible may say in these ancient times, women were not accepted as they should have been. 
But if the prophet says God has now revealed this to her, then that can fit in their belief. And the application of the Bible in modern times is one of the things that ultimately drew uh, Vernon Wayne Howell to that Mount Carmel compound in Northeast Waco. Prior to that, though, the man who would ultimately become known as David Koresh had a rough childhood. There are allegations of physical abuse. He was a high school dropout. Uh, he worked as a carpenter after dropping out of high school, actually knocked up his 16-year-old girlfriend who ultimately aborted that pregnancy and lived in his pickup truck all the way up to the age of 19 where he moved back in with his mom and his stepfather in Tyler, Texas. And it was at this point that he started to attend church at a uh, Seventh-day Adventist organization. And uh, he wasn't well-received at this church. He was apparently somebody who was a bit of a conversational rapist, didn't know when to shut his mouth and listen. Well, ultimately, a friend of his says, hey, there's this group down in Waco who does take the uh, interpretation of the Bible, not only uh, in terms of uh, what it meant when it was written, but also applying it to modern times as well. He's intrigued by this. So he goes down with her, to uh, the Branch Davidian compound, ultimately receives an invite to stay at Mount Carmel, and he's not well-received there initially either. Uh, people think that he's a, a bit annoying. He's not a great communicator. He's kind of a, a bumbling speaker. Apparently, he was a chronic masturbator when he first got there, and also someone who was always talking about his rock star aspirations. So what ultimately allowed him to move up within the ranks of the Branch Davidians then? One of the good things that we were able to come up with from this book is a couple of the surviving Branch Davidians who were there when Vernon Wayne Howell arrived were willing to talk about those days. And they all thought he was a bumbler. He was practically incoherent. They felt sorry for him. He was getting to stay there out of pity rather than the thought he could bring something to the group. But Lois Roden, the leader in her 60s, makes Vernon Howell not only her protege, but her lover, which you can imagine raises a lot of eyebrows. But the prophet thinks he's someone special. And as it turns out, the prophet had breast cancer. She realized there was not a whole lot of time to go. The only potential leader besides her was her uh, rather crazy son, George. She didn't want him. And so Vernon began getting private Bible lessons from Lois Roden. She even took him with her to Israel once when she went on a trip there. He became the head of the Branch Davidians when two things happened. First of all, he was able to fight off George Roden for the leadership. But second, he took another trip to Israel. He came back and revealed what he called a new light. And this guy that, who stuttered, who stammered, who couldn't talk about anything coherently besides, I masturbate too much and I'm going to be a rock star. And that is not an exaggeration, by the way. That's what he talked about. Suddenly comes back and he announces that while he is in Israel, he's raised up into heaven by some angels who inform him of these things. First, he is the new iteration of the Old Testament King Cyrus, who way back when in the Old Testament helped free some Israelites who'd been held captive 
for profit by some other country, and then with his own money helped rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So in the Old Testament, he's the only Gentile that's referred to as a Messiah. Hmm. So Vernon says he's been told he must take the name Cyrus, which in Hebrew is pronounced Koresh. And he took the name David as his first name, because when Christ returns, he'll sit on the throne of David. So David Koresh, that was the first part. Second part, he is also the lamb that is named in the book of Revelation, that he will be the one with his followers to bring about the end times. Remember, the Branch Davidians previously were just trying to get people ready for the end times. Now, here comes this newly anointed David Koresh, who's saying, we are going to make them come now. He would open the seven seals of the great book that's written about in Revelation. And as he opens each seal on the book, great events will happen out in the world. And then the third part, which is where we started getting into what brings about this real tragedy. The lamb and his followers, as is written in Revelation, must fight the agents of Babylon. And Koresh explained that meant the United States government they have to fight them violently, and there has to be death. People have to die on both sides. But the souls of the dead David branch Davidians will lie under an altar for a little while, then be translated by God to come back, lead the armies of Christ, and ultimately defeat the Babylonians, and the kingdom of God will emerge, and Jesus will return. This sounds pretty far-fetched, I think, to most people, but you must remember the Branch Davidians were biblical literalists who believed that the things in the Bible and in Revelation, like the seven-headed beast, were actually symbols for things that existed today. That's what David Koresh taught. And so he and his followers are in Mount Carmel, this isolated compound on top of a scrubby hill outside Waco. And he has promised them that their reward from God, the agents of Babylon are going to attack us and there'll be the great battle. And that is what is going to initiate the end times. This is the situation when ATF decides it's time to raid. Yeah, it's such a tragic, perfect storm of events that led to that horrific scene that day. We'll certainly get more into that in just a second. First, though, this second trip to Israel occurred when Koresh and uh, his followers had left Mount Carmel. There was a power struggle between he and George Roden, as you had just talked mm -hmm. about, and ultimately uh, Vernon does get control back, but in a three-year span, they end up leaving Waco, moving to Palestine. And after he comes back from Israel, they go out to California and start recruiting more followers from California, from around a Seventh-day Adventist uh, populated area in Southern California. They get uh, a number of people from Australia, also some followers from Hawaii as well. But ultimately, he does win Mount Carmel back. Uh, how did he go about doing this? Oddly enough, in a shootout, hmm. I once wrote a book about the OK Corral and how that really wasn't a gunfight. But David Koresh and his followers took Mount Carmel back from George Roden in an actual gunfight. 
They claimed later that George, when the followers had turned up there, uh, came after them with an Uzi. There were eight of the brand new Branch Davidians, counting Vernon. They fired back. The only one wounded was George Roden when a stray bullet clipped a metal splinter off his gun that, that cut his thumb. But the Waco authorities arrested Vernon, or rather now David, and his seven followers. They went on trial for assault and attempted murder, and they were exonerated. The jury couldn't decide anything, and they no-billed everybody. Meanwhile, George Roden sent a, an extremely blasphemous letter to the judge on the case, claiming that if the judge didn't rule properly, God was going to strike him dead with AIDS. The judge sentenced George Roden to six months in jail. Hmm. While George was gone, nobody was paying the property taxes on Mount Carmel. David Koresh stepped in, paid the taxes, and he, is, he and his followers moved back in. Now, while some may believe, just based on what the federal government was going after the Branch Davidians for, that uh, Koresh and his followers were well-versed in guns throughout the 1980s. That wasn't true necessarily, though. They literally purchased their first guns just before that standoff with George Roden. They actually let the McLennan County sheriffs know about a gun cache that the sheriffs had missed when investigating that standoff and shooting. So how did they end up much deeper in the illegal firearms trade in the early 1990s? Maintaining about 140 people at Mount Carmel was an expensive proposition. Some of them had jobs in town. For instance, Koresh's 14-year-old wife was a checker in a grocery store. But still maintaining that kind of property, plus carrying on a ministry in Australia, in Los Angeles, in England, I mean, that was pricey. They needed more money. The first idea was that they would start a garage, which they did. A lot of the Branch Davidian men were blue-collar background. They could fix cars. That worked pretty well. The women sewed hunting vests that they sold at gun shows. The hunting vests had extra pockets for ammo and even little loops if you wanted to carry some hand grenades in case a deer turned mean on you and you needed to frag him. Hmm. Still not enough. Then a gun dealer came to David Koresh in 1992. At this time, the NRA was spending a lot of money publicizing their claim that if a Democrat is elected president in November 1992, the first thing that president will do is take away automatic guns from citizens who own them, or at least try to ban further sales of automatic guns. And of course, with an automatic gun, you pull the trigger, the magazine empties until you let go of the trigger. Semi-automatic, you pull the trigger one bullet comes out or a short burst. At any rate, a lot of Americans were convinced if they wanted to have automatic weapons and they didn't have them yet, they better buy them before this Democratic president, whoever he was, outlawed the sales of them. The gun dealer suggested this. The Branch Davidians should buy up semi-automatic weapons, particularly long guns, rifles. They should also buy what is called a lower receiver, a part that you can put on a semi-automatic weapon and transform it into automatic. What he either didn't tell the Branch Davidians or they didn't know, or frankly, they didn't care because they didn't believe in secular law, 
was that it's illegal to transform a semi-automatic gun to automatic and then sell it without filing paperwork with the government and paying a tax. It's not illegal to have the semi-automatic weapons. It's not illegal to have the parts that will make them into automatics. But it is illegal if you put the two things together, you don't register, you don't pay, which the Branch Davidians did not do. They began selling some of these guns at gun shows. But David Koresh had also started telling his followers that the time is about to come. We are going to have to fight against Babylon and die. First, he preached that this would happen in Israel. But then he claimed what he always called a new light. Whenever God told him something different, he would call it a new light. And this new light was that they would be attacked by Babylon at Mount, at Mount Carmel. And so they began stockpiling their own automatic weapons, large quantities of ammunition. They had to order these things in. They had to order gunpowder. They were making hand grenades. Hand grenade shells, not illegal. Gunpowder, not illegal. Put the two together, illegal. So they're getting quite an armory put together, and they're practicing marksmanship on their property with these guns. They're preparing for a final battle, and they're doing it with guns that are illegal for them to own. A great number of these guns, several hundred at least, and this, of course, is the kind of illegality that if it becomes known to the authorities, the authorities are going to act. Speaking of new light revelations, there is one other element of the David Koresh story that we need to talk about here, and that has to do with his sexual proclivities. In 1986, he let his followers know that as this lamb of God who is uh, sparking the end times, not only was he allowed, but it is his duty to take chosen females of childbearing age as his wives and the mothers of his children. You mentioned that his wife was 14 years old. She was given permission to marry him by her parents, who were members of the Branch Davidians. Ultimately, he insists on access to every female in the group by 1989, but not all Branch Davidians were thrilled about this, including Mark Bro. Who was he, and why was losing his loyalty ultimately detrimental to David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? All of Koresh's followers knew a great deal about the Bible, but Mark Bro, who was almost legally blind, essentially was number two to Koresh. He had been transfixed by Koresh's preaching about the end times. He believed Koresh was a prophet. Mark also believed that he himself occasionally got messages from God, not in the same category that David did but that there was at least something in him that was closer to understanding what God wanted. For a long time, he was devoted to David Koresh, and then he married a Branch Davidian woman who they had recruited out of Australia. When David Koresh announced another new light that said all the women, all the Branch Davidians were, women were now his wives, their husbands were no longer their husbands, and further, Branch Davidian men, excluding Koresh, could no longer have sex. That this would help them concentrate more on worshiping God properly. And some of his followers 
that was it. They thought that was ridiculous. He was making it up. He just wanted to have sex with a bunch of different women. And they left. That included Mark Bro and his wife. The difference between the other ones who left and Mark is that he decided that this proved Koresh was a blasphemer, that he was pretending to be a prophet. And so Mark began not only talking to Branch Davidians outside of Mount Carmel, saying, you need to think about this guy, it's wrong. But he also began contacting the authorities. David Koresh and some of his followers are beating little children inside Mount Carmel. David Koresh is committing rape because he's having sex with underage girls. And it turns out some of them were as young as 10, which was terrible to have to write about in the book, but a fact. And this did a couple things. It got some relatives, family members who lived outside of Mount Carmel, had lost touch a lot with their relatives inside, all up in arms. And Bro contacted members of Congress. He contacted police. He contacted the media. And soon enough, there were investigations launched, first by Child Protective Services in McLennan County about the child beating. The underage girls aspect of this story is such a bizarre one for me because even the federal government in the aftermath of the horrific events in Waco in the spring of 1993 admitted that there wasn't any evidence that uh, he was having sex with underage girls, but clearly that's not the case. Kerry Jewell's congressional testimony proved as much that not only was he having sex and impregnating underage girls, but he was grooming uh, girls who were in that prepubescent stage, too. So why all these years later do we still have former Branch Davidians and other religious schol scholars who are offering a sort of bizarre defense of uh, David Koresh's pedophilia as something other than seriously criminal and morally reprehensible? The hard thing to understand, and it was difficult for me, it still is, is that we believe in a certain secular law. The Branch Davidian survivors who almost, almost unanimously to this day believe David Koresh is the lamb and that all his prophecies are correct, believe that he could not do wrong if he was following what God had told him directly. Koresh used some scripture, translated it, said it must mean this, to say right here in the Bible what this really means is that the lamb gets to have sex with many women. They want to come to him. Further, in the Bible, as he would point out, there were many young girls, 12, 13 years old, who were being taken as wives. To this day, some of his followers will say, if you attack David for doing this, you are attacking God and God's word. And, you know, we shake our heads. The fact remains, that's what these people believed. They're unapologetic about it. And to this day, they would tell you and mean it that Anything that happened, any anyone saying, no, you, that's illegal, you can't do it, is interfering with their freedom of religion. Though, again, for most of us, we think, how can anyone believe that stuff? They cite their legal right to believe what they want, and they do believe it, as strange as it may seem. 
I guess my counter to that, and I understand that you are uh, you are just trying to help uh, help understand based on their beliefs and their uh, their descriptions of things, is how would any of those children who were kids as Branch Davidians ultimately are allowed to leave or escape before it's all said and done, who are now 30 years later adults, how do they feel about either the prospect of being set up like that or having gone through any version of that? So did you get to speak with any of those former Branch Davidian children who are now adults? I did. I did. Were you able able to ask about any of that? I did. But most of them, particularly the women, do not want to talk about it. Whether that is because they now are repulsed by the things that happened, or whether they feel they actually had a religious experience with David Koresh that the outside world can't understand. Hmm. But I did talk to one middle-aged man who was a child there, and a couple other former Branch Davidian children have, have spoken over the years. The ones that spoke always talk about the great love they felt within the compound, that they were being protected and that they were being raised up right. The exception to this, and a very courageous exception, was young Kiri Jewell, who went to Congress and testified on the record about Koresh first telling her she would be one of his wives when she was seven years old who first had sexual contact with her when she was 10, how thrilled her mother was that the lamb had chosen her. And when her father, alerted by Mark Bro that this was going on, kept Carrie when she was having a visit to him outside the compound and wouldn't release her, Carrie's mother called Carrie and said, you know, you've got to come back. David's giving beer to another 13-year-old girl to soften her up. You'll lose your place. It's, again, we shake our heads. There are always going to be people who believe that whatever they decide they want to do is because it's God's will. If you want to find an excuse in scripture and translate it in a certain way, you can do that. This is why one of the points I hope is raised in the book is when will we ever come to grips with what is and absolutely cannot be accepted as religious freedom? Where is the line? Because somehow there must be one. We just have never established it properly. Thanks for tuning in to part one of my conversation with Jeff Gwynn on his excellent new book, Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. Coming up in part two of our chat, we dissect the Waco siege, including the perfect storm of conditions that led to the initial shootout, as well as colossal mistakes made by ATF and FBI leadership that caused a tragedy which still serves as a rallying cry for anti-government movements today. As always, Gentleman Jesus did provide the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.